You're listening to the Word of Life AG Podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom Wood brought us a special message leading into Christmas titled, God With Us. Let's check it out. Well, good morning, Word of Life. It is great to be able to see everybody here and be able to be a part of this weekend. Uh, While I was outside saying hi to people as uh, everyone was arriving to church, I met a number of people that I haven't had a chance to see before, and perhaps this is the first time being able to come be a part of the church. Maybe it's the first time in a while, but I hope that you've been made to feel extremely welcome here. I hope that this has been a great time you've been able to gather and be a part of service with us this weekend. Um, I also want to let everyone know, you will have heard this already as part of service today, but Christmas Eve is coming up, and it is the easy time of the year to invite somebody to church. And the number one reason, this has been proven again and again, the number one reason someone decides to go to church instead of staying home is that somebody gives a personal invitation. So I want to encourage you, think of somebody. There's got to be people that you know that won't be in church on Christmas Eve that you can invite and they can come and be a part of service here with us. I give you my word, it's going to be a great time together and I'm looking forward to it. So everyone okay with that so far? All righty. So um, probably very similar to everyone here, Megan and I have a series of Christmas stories and things that have happened to us in married life that we often bring up every Christmas season. And one of them is something that happened a number of years ago now, and I'm still not ready to laugh about it. But you might be, so I'll tell you what happened. It was um, back in New Jersey, and our set of twins, right now they're nine, and back then when they were two, Megan already knows where I'm going with this, when they were two, I was in bed one morning and the alarm was going off and I'd hit snooze, so I'm kind of in that in-between stage of sleep and awake and I'm just kind of sat there and I hear some unusual sounds. I hear smash, crunch, smash, crunch. So I get up, no idea what I'm about to find and the only way I can really explain is that in our house in New Jersey at that time there was kind of like this half wall, it wasn't too dissimilar from this and there was a railing here and our Christmas tree was right here and so what was happening is that Moses, he was one of the twins and he was grabbing an ornament from the Christmas tree, dropping it over the banister, over the side, I now know that was the smash and then Esther, his twin sister, was in full princess regalia including Tiara and the plastic clippity-cloppity princess shoes. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And she was stomp, stomp, stomp. That was the crunch. I got there too late. There were no ornaments left that they could reach. I mean, they were probably about that high at that point. So like on the tree, if you think like that high, plus a little bit of arm length, kind of about that high, there was no ornaments left on the tree. Megan was so angry. She said, I am not replacing these ornaments this year. We are just going to have a tree that's half full up there and completely bare down here. And that's exactly what happened. I'm not ready to laugh about it yet. Anyway, we all have these Christmas stories. We're going to go ahead and today I want to look at um, a portion of the nativity story. This will be very familiar to most of us here. The story about Jesus' birth, it's been told and retold again and again. But I want to look at a particular moment, and it's a phrase that an angel says to Joseph that I really want to hit on. It's this phrase, and we sang about it as one of our worship songs today, is that God is with us. God is with us. That's an incredible statement. It's a huge, you know, it's a huge thing to say. It's a huge promise to deliver on, that God is with us. It sounds simple that, yeah, God is with us. But it's a good reminder for you and for I that it's not only true at Christmas. It's not only true on Sundays. It's not just true when we're feeling strong spiritually. 
God is not only with us when all the factors line up, but because of Jesus, it's true all the time in each and every situation that God is with us. God is not out there somewhere. And it's incorrect for us to think about God as being distant and remote, and he's kind of distant and out there and, you know, in the stratosphere somewhere, I guess God is. That's a wrong way to think about this. And the message of Jesus, in some regards, it's about God shrinking the gap between humanity. It's about that gulf, that distance between God and humanity closing up. Because of Jesus and the cross, the gap that's been created by sin is closed. The relationship between God and humanity can be healed. The Christmas story is told and retold every year, and hopefully it's a reminder that God doesn't have to be distant and out there somewhere, but rather we can experience and we can live God with us. We can live with that awareness and that sensitivity to just how close God is. At this point in the story where we're going to be picking it up, the angel has appeared to Mary and let her know that she would become pregnant with Jesus, and she was as surprised as anybody. But she responds with deep courage and faith. And we're going to pick this up in Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. And this verse that Matthew mentions in this is from the book of Isaiah. And all of this occurred, this is what Matthew writes, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message. And that whole idea of to fulfill, in the whole of Matthew's gospel, that phrase is mentioned 12 times, to fulfill, it's a big theme for Matthew. Five of those 12 times, it happens as part of the nativity story. As part of the birth of Jesus, Matthew is sure to make sure that the readers and the hearers know that this is happening to fulfill what was promised long ago. As I was getting ready for today, I read this from an English guy. You know you can trust it because he's British. Unlike the British soccer team, I'm moving on. By repeated use of the fulfillment phrase, Matthew clearly wants his readers to see that Jesus was not only the completion of the Old Testament story at a historical level, as his genealogy portrays, but also that he was in a deeper sense its fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of what was said in the Old Testament. This gives us another way of looking at the Old Testament in relation to Jesus. Not only does the Old Testament tell the story that Jesus completes, it also declares the promise that Jesus fulfills. It's by a British author called Christopher Wright. We read that there's a fascinating promise that was fulfilled that day, that God is with us. The birth of Jesus is not simply the birth of someone important or even the birth of someone significant, but this is God's son. God is with us. God who seems distant, who feels like he's just out there somewhere. God whom it may feel is for other people, but not for me. God who is too busy to worry about little old me. God who may have been active in the Bible times once upon a time, but not anymore. And now God is with us. God is with us. He is close, not distant. Close and not distant. 
the promise of the Bible and the personal stories of millions of people is that this is their real life story, not just some empty theory. People have lived life with God close, with God being with us. It is not only a theory. With the birth of Jesus, humanity can understand and experience God is with us. It's worth considering what the promise of God is with us was supposed to look like. What were people expecting when they heard this phrase, God is with us? What was on people's minds? And the Old Testament gives us some ideas. Back in Isaiah 6, it was the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Another example of what God is with us is supposed to look like. In the book of 1 Kings, talking about King Solomon rededicating the temple. Solomon then summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral families of the Israelites. They were to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant to the temple from its location in the city of David. When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And then another example, God with us, what this is supposed to look like from the book of Exodus. One day Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you and I know you by name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name Yahweh before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. There's another example of God with us. God's presence being so powerful, so awestruck, that Moses couldn't even look, because if he did, it would be fatal. How majestic God is. We also could talk about the burning bush or the fourth man in the fire or the pillars of cloud and fire. It's consistent that when God shows up throughout the Old Testament, when he is with us, it's traumatic and spectacular. It's intimidating and wondrous. We would expect that when the Messiah comes, it would be even greater than any of those other moments described in the Old Testament. Plus, what the people weren't expecting is that the Messiah would be divine. It would be God's own son. So that would surely mean that his arrival would be infinitely more grand and more awe-inspiring than anything else we could see in the whole of the Old Testament. But that's not what we see. We see an angel visiting a seemingly unassuming young lady, 
likely a teenager at the time, in some nothing town from an undistinguished family. From the New Testament, we don't know anything about Mary's family except that she has a relative named Elizabeth. We also don't see anything about Nazareth in the whole Old Testament. And the only insight we have about that town in the New Testament is that it's a place that others look down on. And this is something Megan and I have a frame of reference for. A number of years ago, we've shared this a few times, but we used to live in a very small town in Montana. And when we say small town in Montana, not too long ago, I was telling one of the office staff about this, and I pulled out my phone, got out Google Maps and showed them, and they finally got to see what a small town in Montana really means. It is a teeny tiny place, less than 1,000 people. If you drive 10 minutes out of town, you lose cell phone signal. You cannot drink the tap water because it tastes like a science experiment. The near... This is not in my notes, but one day they had to switch water supplies to the backup because they were doing some repairs or something, and we put the kids in the bath, and we took them out. They were shiny. I don't know why, but they glistened. But in this small town, hour and a half to the nearest Walmart, and when I say hour and a half to the nearest Walmart, you drive 45 minutes one way, you take a right, you drive 45 minutes the other way, you're at Walmart, and the whole way you see nothing. It is the middle of nowhere, teeny tiny town. And when I would get together with other people from Montana, they would look down on our town. It was a small town, middle of nowhere. People would make fun of our town. But you know what's amazing? It says so much about humanity, is that about 25 miles away from our town was an even smaller town that had about 200 people in. And this teeny tiny town that was a little bit further down the road from our tiny town, they used to bus their kids in from the even smaller town to come to our high school. The kids in our high school, for the town of less than 1,000 people, would make fun of and look down on the kids from 25 miles away from an even smaller town, calling them small-time hicks. Because you're from this major metropolitan area? What are we talking about here? There's something in people that we want to look down on somebody. We want to feel a sense of superiority above somebody. And that is exactly what we see with Mary, with Nazareth. Nazareth is talked down about in the Bible. Nazareth is a nothing place. Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. There is no reason to think that this is noteworthy. There's nothing significant about this at all. And yet this is where Mary is. And Mary doesn't seem to be a big shot. Her family doesn't seem to be distinguished. This is the person God comes and chooses to fulfill his promises. Not in the way that you and I would expect. Not in a way that's in keeping with what God with us looks like in the Old Testament, which is grand and spectacular and noteworthy. Instead, he visits Mary. This is the verse that many of us will know. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Jerusalem forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby will be born, a baby born will be holy and he'll be called the Son of God. Mary's qualifier is not her credentials, it's not her resume, it's not her prestige. Mary's qualifier is that she's loyal to God. She trusts in him and she's willing to embrace the unique call that the angel tells her about. If Mary being an unlikely candidate wasn't enough, the setting where the birth of the Messiah, the Son of God, would actually take place is even more unexpected. The next chapter in Luke 2. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
or return to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's hometown. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now we assume that the manger being available meant that this all took place in a stable, and perhaps it did. What we do know is that this was a hasty plan B after no formal lodging was available. Possibly it was outside with a makeshift shelter. Maybe the familiar scene with animals and a stable is accurate, but no matter the details, it's a far cry from what we would expect from the moment that God would be with us. Jesus is born, and as we read, it fulfills the Old Testament promise of a baby born to a virgin, Emmanuel, God is with us. But his entry into the world is not glamorous. His entry into the world is nothing that you or I would envy. It's far cry from the foundations of the temple shaking or filling with smoke, as Isaiah saw. It's wildly less impressive than the temple filling with God's presence in such a way that the priest could not even minister as in Solomon's day. There's no call to hide one's face because it's such a powerful moment like Moses had experienced. But this is a moment of unknowable significance because finally, God is with us. Because no one was expecting God with us to look anything like this, it shouldn't be surprising that many have rejected Jesus, including many faithful Jewish people who are eagerly waiting for the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. This verse from John 1 came to mind this week. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. The world didn't recognize him. The birth of Jesus didn't look like the entrance of the King of Kings. It should, and possibly many ways, this whole theme of it not looking like expected continued throughout Jesus' life. Jesus preached in ways that no one expected. Jesus said things that no one expected. Jesus made friends with those that the extreme religious types were rejecting. He acted like no one expected the Messiah to act. And in many ways, it's not surprising that many that should have eagerly received the Messiah actually missed that he was living among them. Many of the religious people were so blinded by tradition and feelings of superiority that they couldn't see what was right in front of them. And let's read that passage from John again. He came into the very world he created but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. If one person claps, we all have to. The right to be called a child of God addresses the deepest needs and the deepest pains of humanity. The deepest pain, the deepest hurt that we have is that separation from our maker, is that separation from God. As we've already said today, that separation is started and caused and fueled by sin, and Jesus came to defeat all of that so that we have the right to be called children of God, so that we could live with God with us. To complete his story, God couldn't send another prophet with a strong message. To complete the story, the system of priests and the temple weren't enough. A king leading God's people wasn't going to be adequate. We needed God to become humanity. And this is a small part of a much larger argument and train of thought from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2, verse 14. 
Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Jesus became a human. God became humanity. He died a human death to break the power of sin, to pay the price, to accept the punishment on our behalf. Without him, what we just read is that we are living as slaves to the fear of dying. But he is merciful. He is faithful. And because of him, the prison of sin is destroyed. The virgin will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. All who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So what does it mean? What does it look like to live with God with us? As you can imagine, there's a number of different things that could be said, a number of different things that I could share right now, but I've got a few. The first thing is, God is with us, he can be found. What is it like to live with God with us? What does it mean? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does that experience look like? It means that he can be found. This verse from Jeremiah 29. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I would say that this is underrated. That the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, can be found. That he can be known. If I wanted to meet the president... I have no idea what I would have to do to make that happen. And yet, I can know the creator of the universe. The book of James says, draw close to God and he will draw close to you. He listens when we pray. If we look for him, we will find him. God is with us. He can be found. Second thing, God is with us. He guides. He guides. Isaiah 48. This is what the Lord says. Your redeemer, the holy one of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is good for you and leads you along the paths you should follow. Life is complicated. Figuring out one foot in front of the other is difficult. I was wondering this week and spent some time kind of thinking through the whole idea of is life more complicated now than it would have been 2,000 years ago? It seems to me that despite all of the advancements we've made, the need for God to guide us is more important than ever. How many decisions do you make in a day? I read a study from August of just this year that concludes on average we make 122 informed decisions in a day. An older study includes each and every minor decision and they estimate that as much as 35,000 decisions are made every day by each of us. How many of those decisions have consequences? I don't think it's a stretch to assume that we are given multiple things a day that we should be praying about to seek God for guidance. Third thing, God is with us. He teaches. God is with us. He teaches. This verse in the book of James, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. 
Wisdom is a precious commodity. The ability to figure out what's right and wrong, the ability to be disciplined and to have a full perspective, to plan for the future. The implication from James from this verse is that if we lack wisdom and we will face situations in life where we need a greater level of wisdom, then we can have that wisdom just by approaching God, just by asking Him for wisdom. The promise is, if you ask, God will prove Himself generous. Asking for wisdom means admitting that we don't have it all figured out. In human relationships, we might fear that admitting we don't have it all figured out, admitting that we need help, admitting that we can't navigate this by ourselves, we may be fearful that it ends in a rebuke, it ends in a stern reaction, it ends in people looking down at us. But that's not what we get from God. This is not what James is telling us. He lovingly and carefully teaches us. Fourth thing, God is with us, He's a friend. God is with us, He's a friend. John 15, 15, Jesus speaking, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. This whole thought is that God is with us, that he's not distant. With a baby in the manger, we see the closeness geographically or physically. Some ancient thoughts about the divine and what would be typical thoughts outside of a Jewish worldview and outside of a biblical worldview 2,000 years ago is that the gods are up there somewhere. The God of the Bible, in contrast, is everywhere. The God of the Bible is within his creation and there's no end to where he may be, that he is everywhere. He's in the full scope of his creation. But the baby in the manger and later the man that Jesus would grow up to be and then the sending of the Holy Spirit it doesn't only speak of a physical or geographical or a spatial closeness, but also relational. We can be physically close to someone, but relationally opposed. Jesus wasn't only here physically. He was, but that wasn't the only kind of closeness. It was also relational closeness. It was that friendship that Jesus promised to the disciples. God is with us, not only in proximity, but also relationally. We didn't impose a friendship on Jesus. He initiated friendship with us. He welcomed his followers as friends, not just servants. Number five, God is with us, he rescues. God is with us, he rescues. Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. Undermining the problem of sin doesn't help anybody. Sin devastates and destroys lives. This is proven over and over again. Sin is the problem we all have. Temptation is the problem we all have. The message of Jesus does not make sense until we admit that humanity is a broken, dysfunctional mess and I'm a part of the problem. Once we recognize that there is a problem, then our desire for a solution comes alive. God is with us not just to point to the problem, but to obliterate the problem. God is with us to rescue us from the power of sin, to forgive us and give us the chance to know life. We hate sin, not because we're angry and hateful, but because we love people and sin destroys people's lives. Sin destroys people's eternity. The baby in the manger meant that God's rescue plan was in play. The wheels had started and there was nothing that could stop what he was planning. Number six, God is with us, He comforts. He comforts. From 2 Corinthians, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. Just yesterday, I was doing some work in the basement. I was working on the message for today. And I got a desk in the basement where I do some work and I'm kind of down there busy going at it. And next thing I know, I hear some sounds. My first thought was it was laughter. And then I realized it was actually a, scheme, a kid screaming in pain. They shouldn't sound the same, but they did, whatever. But I made my way upstairs and I see one of the kids, I won't say who, because I didn't ask them if it was okay if I shared the story, but one of the kids was there and they'd slipped on the ice outside, banged their head and they came inside. And wouldn't you know, there's Megan being mom, comforting kid. I, we can clap for Megan, comforting kids. Bringing comfort. Next thing I know, I'm running off, I'm getting ice packs and doing what I can do as dad. But in that moment, the kid needed comfort. I don't think we ever age out of needing comfort. We may be tough, we may not want to admit it, but we need that comfort. That image of a parent giving comfort to a child, that's the image that God points to, to describe himself. It was Jesus that first made this idea of approach God as Father to people so that we can understand the love that he has for us. It's to look at a paternal relationship. God's love for us is demonstrated in the parent's love for a child. And that picture yesterday is one of many, and any parent here knows, they got many, many instances of the love shown to a child. That was just one, just from this weekend. Megan showing love to one of the kids. And if you want to know which one of the kids, just rub their heads, you'll feel a bump sooner or later. Number seven, this is the final one that I've written down. There are many, many more, of course. God is with us. He strengthens. He strengthens. Ephesians 3.16, I pray that from His glorious unlimited resources, He will empower you with inner strength through His Spirit. And one of the things as a pastor and my responsibility and role as a pastor is that people will come and they want to meet with me and they want to share some vulnerable areas of their life. And I always take it as a, a real honor and I'm always really touched that people would trust me with that. I don't assume that because I have the title of reverend or the title of pastor that people should share vulnerable areas of my life. I, I'm always um, extremely touched and moved that people would trust me with some of the most sensitive areas of their life. And what I can tell you is that my time in ministry, I've met with some of the toughest people you could know people with a solid exterior, people that have just got that front of ain't nothing getting through this. I'm tough. I'm ready. But as soon as they feel ready to open up, man, it's just unbelievable the hurts that people carry. The toughest people you and I know carrying burdens, carrying heaviness. And to just see strong people break reminds me we all need the strength that comes from God. We all need the strength that comes from God with us. Life weighs us down, but God is with us, and He gives strength. God is with us. He can be found. He guides. He teaches. He's a friend. He rescues. He comforts, and He strengthens. And these things are not happening at a distance. This is the restored relationship with God at work. This is not just theory. These are not just things that we say. These are not just bumper stickers. These are not just fridge magnets. This is the life of a believer, is living with God as a friend, living knowing that He can be found, that He is teaching us a better way, that He is rescuing us, that He comforts, that He's our strength. To help illustrate this, I want to consider the opposite. We're talking about God with us, but what is life like if we're separated from God when He's distant? So God with us versus God apart from us. We've said that God with us, He can be found. Instead, 
we feel distant from our maker. He guides or we figure it out by ourselves. He teaches. Alternatively, we do what everyone else is doing. He's a friend or we feel alone. He rescues or we're helpless. He comforts or we're hurt and without hope. He strengthens or we live weak and defeated. God is with us. In the Old Testament, there was a complicated system of priests and sacrifices to be made at the temple. A specially designated priest would help people relate and communicate with God. The temple would help people communicate with Him and it would be uh, positioned in uh, the middle of their relationship with Him is that you needed to have this system of priests and sacrifice in the temple. And without that, the relationship with God wasn't possible. What Jesus achieved on the cross means that the system of sacrifices is now obsolete. Now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because the Holy Spirit has come, no one needs a holy man or a holy woman to mediate between them and God anymore. The sacrifices that needed to happen, they were prescribed in the Bible. The priests that were required to oversee everything, the temple system to facilitate the worship from God's people, it all changed with the promise, God is with us. When that was fulfilled, it all changed. Saying that we are friends of God is not a minor thing. This simple phrase is only possible because a whole system of worship has been reinvented from strict, rigid, prescribed rituals to a true relationship with the creator of the universe. In our context, typically, when we talk about a friend, we'll normally mean that someone that isn't equal. We don't think of friends as superior or inferior to each other. But here we're saying that we're friends of God. He, of course, will always be superior to anybody. To be a friend of God is not about being on equal footing, but it's about having all the things in the way of that friendship moved out of the way. If a king or president or a billionaire businessman wanted to meet with me, I would imagine that there will be a background check. I'm guessing that if the movies are correct, when I got there, I'd be searched and frisked. That security personnel would grill me to make sure that nothing dangerous is gonna happen in this meeting. Another staff member would then brief me on etiquette. How does this person like to be referred to? What's some of the formal protocol? There would likely be a set agenda and a set time frame. It's possible that anything I wish to discuss would have had to have been disclosed long in advance for approval. I'm assuming and piecing together little bits of what I've seen and heard from other accounts that this is what a meeting with an extremely powerful person would be like, cold and impersonable. But let's imagine the meeting goes well, the king, the president, or the billionaire decides it was a great time together and gives me their cell phone number. They ask me to text anytime. They suggest that we meet again soon and how about we get lunch next time and I get to pick the place. They're available anytime if I need help. That if Megan needs help with anything, let them know and I can count on them. That if I extend an invitation to this important person to come to our house and spend time with the family, this person will definitely come. That at any point during the day, I can get in touch with them and enjoy this friendship. The friendship is so strong and committed that it's difficult to imagine how this person has time to run a country or to run a business if they're so committed to their friendship with me. Now this isn't a perfect analogy but it does paint the picture a little bit. The Old Testament system was in many ways the first, the cold, impersonal meeting, the feeling on edge, being uneasy, hoping you don't mess it up. But because Jesus fulfilled all those requirements on the cross, the relationship is now free and available to all. Friendship with God doesn't mean we're equals. 
but it means that anything that was blocking that relationship, anything blocking the communication has been removed and dealt with. God is with us. He is close, not distant. It didn't look like anything, what anybody was expecting. And though Jesus was rejected by many, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to be called children of God. God is with us. He can be found. He guides. He teaches. He's a friend. He rescues. He comforts. And he strengthens. The virgin will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. I got a couple of questions for you. I encourage you to write these down and maybe this week you'll have a chance to reflect through these, pray through these, maybe even chat them over with somebody you trust. But the first question I put to you is, how is Jesus different from my expectations? How is Jesus different from my expectations? The birth of Jesus was unlike anything anyone was expecting. So was much of his earthly life, the way that he ministered, the way that he taught, the things that he said, the people he made friends with so different from what people are expecting. What are your expectations of the Savior of the world and how are they different from what you may have guessed? How is Jesus different from my expectations? Second question, how does God being with us change my life? How does God being with us change my life? How does Him being found, how is Him guiding or teaching being a friend, rescuing, comforting, strengthening. How does this change your life? Maybe it's one of the things that I mentioned. Maybe it's something that I didn't mention, something else completely. But how does God being with us change my life? I want to repeat a verse. I've said it a few times in the message. It's been a great verse. It stood out to me a lot over the last few years. John 1:12. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this verse, but one thing that always stands out to me is that without Jesus, none of us have the right to be called children of God. But with Him, and with believing in Him, and trusting Him, and putting our faith in Him, committing to follow Him, making that lifelong decision of, yes, I'm gonna follow Jesus, with that decision comes the right to be called a child of God, comes the right to live with God with us. The bad news is we cannot do this on our own. The good news is he's already done it for us. That is the good news of Jesus, that what is impossible for you and I to fix that broken relationship that humanity has with God, that feeling of being distant, of God being out there somewhere. We can't fix that ourselves, but Jesus has. He has fixed that on the cross. He took every single punishment for every single sin. The Bible says he took on the sin of the world and it was dealt with on the cross. For anyone that puts their trust and their confidence and their faith in him, we can have all those sins forgiven. They can be done over with. We can go from death to life. This is the good news. This is the message of the cross. To live with God with us. Not as an abstract theory, but an honest to goodness way of living life. God with us. And you may be here today. You may have never set foot in a church before. This may be the first time you've ever heard anything about Jesus. You may have been in church every Sunday of your life. But maybe today something clicked. Maybe today something made sense that before has never made sense. 
Maybe you're just done of living with God feeling out there somewhere and you want to live with the reality of Him being with us. I'd love to give you an invitation today to make the greatest decision any of us could ever make, the decision to follow Jesus. I want to invite everyone here, everyone just closing your eyes and bowing your heads. We do this at the end of every service. I give you my word, I'm not going to do anything to embarrass anybody. But if you're here today and you're brave enough to say, Tom, you know what, I'm not following God, but I want to start today. I'd love to know who I'm praying for when we pray in just a moment. So if that's you today, would you mind just putting your hand in the air just so I know who we're praying for? Wonderful, thank you. Amen. Anybody else here? Wonderful, amen. Anybody else? I promise I'm not going to embarrass you. You're not going to do anything you're going to regret on the way home. But when we pray together, if you want to be included when we pray, please just let me know. I'd love to pray with you. Wonderful, amen. Amen. Wonderful. Come on, Word of Life, let's celebrate with people that have made the best decision any of us could make today. Amen. We're going to pray a prayer. The words are going to be on the screen. I invite everyone here to pray along with me. We do this at the end of every service, and we believe that praying a prayer like this is the power to change things when you pray it with faith. So come on, everybody, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's celebrate one more time with people. Amen.